1: With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter
0: Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our graduate assistant elect, Lawson Medlin. All right, so I think we got a kind of fun topic. Uh, Peter did a, an article on some various things with marketplace of goods and ideas and related to Ronald Coase. And one of the things with, Co- one of uh, Ronald Coase's most famous papers with uh, externalities, So these are third party effects that might result from a market transaction where you got a buyer and a seller, and then you've got some third party that's either harmed or benefited. Well, at the end of this paper, he said, maybe instead of chasing, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, utopian policy uh, of some sort to create utopia here. Uh, maybe we should just start with the status quo and see if we can make small incremental changes. And that that always stuck with me as a very practical way to to approach economics and certainly something that I've tried to do with, uh, with the things um, I pursue. So, Peter, what was this article all about?
1: Sure. Well, I, I also want to start off by saying, uh, you know, Coase wrote this paper in, in 1974. And a lot of times, uh, Coase is known for uh, this property rights stuff that Russ alluded to. And I would say uh, rightfully so, because uh, I, I think Coase is probably, uh, you know, a lot of important economists were at Chicago at the time Coase was Milton Friedman, Gary Becker, George Stigler. Uh, all of those people are probably, well, I'd, I'd say at least Friedman and Becker are probably better known than Coase, at least publicly, certainly Friedman is. Uh, but I would say Coase maybe is more important than all of them. Uh, which is uh, uh, kind of a bold statement to make, but I think Coase uh, basically corrected a fundamental error that uh, started very early in economics and, and the error of this idea of externalities uh, that I actually think the profession still has not internalized his work and recovered from. So I think Coase's contributions were great, but because he contributed so much in that realm, sometimes his other papers aren't discussed. This is one of those other papers that we're gonna talk about today, which is the marketplace for goods and the marketplace for ideas and kind of the subtitle is the economics of the first amendment. And so the start of the paper is Coase pointing out, and this was again, written in the seventies, you might notice some differences today which we'll get into, but Coase starts off with a puzzle. He says that uh, academics, journalists, intellectual elite types basically have this preference for the market for goods, or excuse me, the market for ideas, rather, Over the market for goods and they'll defend an un- unregulated vision of that market. And so these are like free speech absolutists. Basically, uh, again, written in the 70s, what Coase was saying is, by and large, the market for ideas uh, is one that academics academic should have no regulations at all. There should be total free speech. Professors should be able to write about whatever they want. Uh, journalists should never have any sort of like accountability for the things that they write because it's important that they be able to do so freely. Uh, zero regulations on any sort of speech, but weirdly, these same professional intellectuals uh, think it's very necessary to regulate the market for goods. And so, we shouldn't have regulations on speech, but we should have regulations on trade. And Coase points out, well, this is sort of weird. Why is it that the best amount of regulation on speech is zero, but the best amount of regulation on goods and services and trade is actually pretty high? Uh, what, what explains this asymmetry? And so there were at the time two, what Coase considered to be popular but wrong explanations for this asymmetry. One thing that intellectuals would say kind of in response to this, because the, you know Coase wasn't the first person who noticed this asymmetry One thing that people would say is, well, the market for goods and services has all these externalities, another thing that Coase wrote on. And so like when you buy gasoline uh, and you use it, you pollute the air a lot for everybody else, but you don't have to pay that cost. And so we have to regulate the market for goods and services because you're producing all these externalities if you don't. There's an easy answer back to this. What do you think?
0: Any ideas? Pollution doesn't exist. Uh, well, that's that, that's one way.
1: I I'll maintain the <laughs> let, I'm let's kidding, say externalities. By the way, pollution, listeners.
0: I'm kidding. I do believe there's such a thing as pollution.
1: Anyone want to take a stab? Coase's response to this was that in the market for ideas, there are also externalities. Right? Uh, it's not like, or in other words, you could have market failures in the market for ideas too. It's not like there's no wrong information that goes out, or you know, possible idea pollution that could exist out there. Maybe eventually the truth will always win, but it doesn't have to, Justin. It's it's
2: not just that the wrong information goes out, it's that there's a cost to the wrong information. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. it's
1: you, you can maybe uh, trick people into doing something bad and personally benefit from
0: it, right? So, uh, uh, a conversation that I'm having between you and I, and Luke overhears our conversation and changes his behavior accordingly, would be kind of a parallel to the market, like you and I had a. Communication that was private or not necessarily directed to be public, even though maybe it was overheard, like pollution. So we polluted, young yeah. Luke over here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, it, it, the modern
1: idea of this would be: well, you know, politician A and talk show guest B get together on a show and they have this conversation, and people are wrongly influenced mm-hmm. by the conversation, right? Because the, these two lie, or maybe they're just uh, unintentionally wrong, and that convinces a bunch of people to act in a way. Uh, that imposes costs on others like maybe vote for a certain candidate who actually is really bad or something like that and so the point is markets aren't perfect Coase acknowledges this but that's true about the market for ideas too not just the market for goods so that's problem you know that's answer number one uh totally dismissed it's it's not a good explanation the second explanation is that well it's true that you know the market for ideas can fail but the truth will eventually out and the market for ideas is essential for a functioning democracy. You have to have free exchange of ideas so that way the best ideas can win and that way society can flourish. And so you need that free exchange of ideas, even if there's mistakes occasionally, you can't have a good working democracy without it. Any problems with this?
0: uh no just uh, i was thinking i think i'm sure part of coast's argument would be if there's competition among the people communicating or whatever then that should help bring out the truth or at least the truth to be investigated assuming the truth is a positive so so i i I, I think coast would actually
1: i think coast would actually agree with that that i think coast generally does take the idea that the truth will out and it's Mm important to have the conversation i i think coast would agree with that But why doesn't this work for the asymmetry?
2: Isn't he going to say something like that same argument could be used for the uh, market for goods? Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. Like what sort of democracy functions without clothes or houses or food? Uh, You don't have a whole lot of enlightened liberal societies where the people are poor and destitute, right? That just doesn't exist. Uh, You can't afford to have good governance uh, if you're too poor to eat. And so again, it doesn't coase's argument isn't that well it's not true that free speech is necessary for a functioning democracy i think coase would agree with this but he's saying well if you believe that it's also true for the market for goods you need to have a market for goods to have a functioning democracy so if that argument means we shouldn't regulate the market for speech it also means we shouldn't regulate the market for goods so i and coase's argument he makes a pretty weak argument here is either neither of, according to the arguments we've heard so far, either neither of these markets, goods or ideas should be regulated, or both should. And so either we're over-regulating the market for goods, or we're under-regulating the market for ideas. And actually, Coase is uh, pretty moderate about this. Uh, you know, Coase is not like a, a radical you know, anarchist. He's not a libertarian or anything like that, as far as I know. What Coase says is he thinks we're probably under-regulating the market for ideas a little bit. Uh, he thinks that uh you know there's some place for government regulation and society in the market for goods and he thinks well since we're not regulating the market idea for ideas uh maybe we need to do that more and he's not very he doesn't say that very strongly so that's not like coast official position statement or something like that but he says i, I tend to think that the efficient amount of regulation yeah. is not zero and so we should have some there but the the point of the paper is not what coast thinks the point of the paper is so why do academics or professional intellectuals, at least at the time, value unregulated free speech so much, but they don't value unregulated, you know, market for goods and services? Any other ideas? Because they're in, they're providing one of those things. Yeah, that, this, this is exactly what Coast says. Is uh, and Coast, by the way, isn't the first
0: they're the pro- existing uh, barbers and stylists that don't want people braiding hair out of their houses, right? So yeah, they, they're protecting their own turf.
1: Yeah, that's right. He's saying journalists peddle in the exchange of ideas, academics peddle in the exchange of ideas. They don't peddle in the exchange of goods and services. And so it's really easy First off, as the person who's you know engaging in that market for ideas to say, oh, no, our market's very necessary for the functioning of democracy. So we, we can't regulate it because you have this fear. Well, you you as an academic don't want your administrators to come down and say, you're not allowed to be a communist, right? Uh, this And the academics in the 70s, probably a lot of them were socialist sympathizers, wouldn't want the boards of their universities to have control over what they write, because probably a lot of the boards would be uncomfortable with like socialist leanings of faculty members at the time. Uh, At least I think things have changed a little bit on that. Uh, And and so they they supported this idea. On the other hand, you know, those other markets, goods and services, well, these are kind of lowly markets, right? Uh, People who like are buying clothes, well, they're not very smart like us, right? And so we got to make sure we watch out for those poor people who are buying clothes and goods and services because they're just not informed like we are. Our market is really informed. Their market's not so informed. This is the idea, right? These aren't my beliefs. This is what uh, Coast believes that the professional intellectual class believes.
2: Yes, Justin. Isn't it not just that this, um, the markets for goods and services, those are, uh, those people don't, it's not just that it's like a lowly market. It's that, the uh regulation enables the people who are selling ideas to actually exert control over that market in a way yeah um, so-, so it's not just that like the market that market is stupid or whatever it's that this enables us who are the purveyors of ideas to actually control the market um in a, in, a, in a that is the market for goods and services
1: yeah so coast brings up the second point as well uh, that uh you know the these uh, people trading in the market for ideas, the pro- professional intellectuals will themselves probably be the ones crafting the regulations, right? because they're the ones who peddle on ideas. And so they don't want to regulate their own market, but they want the power to regulate and so that leaves the other market, the market for goods and services, right. And so there's kind of this dual self-interest going on. First, you don't want your own market regulated. Uh, at least not at the time. I think you know, we'll move past that a little bit. And the second is you want the power to impose regulations on other people, you know, for various reasons. One is you could maybe genuinely think you can improve people's lives. But the second is like maybe you can, if you can mark, regulate markets, you can craft them in a way that benefits yourself. And so we've got kind of like a more uh, nice explanation or a more, you know, self interested, uh, conniving explanation. Uh, either one would be
0: sufficient, I think. So. All right, well, this looks like a good spot to go into our break. Um, I think when we come back now, we have to think about the, the tide shifting. So has the current academia, um, you know, uh, embraced COS, uh, the current shutdown, disinformation, Department of Disinformation? Uh, uh, are they just following COS's ideas at this point? And we'll let uh, Peter try to lead us through that here in just a bit. The Board Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and human flourishing. We have a new major, Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, along with the PPE League. It's an intercollegiate competition. We're looking for new uh, students to join. So if you have a student that might be interested in some academic events and competing against other colleges, please contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. All right, so I um, want to get into some modern applications. Have, have things changed over time or not? We've got all the, the shutdown and uh, of speech and uh, people getting booted off of Twitter, uh, probably not the least of which was one of our uh, former presidents, Trump. So what exactly is free speech or hate speech in today's world? It seems like it's morphed a lot. and. And then I also kind of think: Are people just uh, more sensitive than they used to be? That this has kind of evolved as a right to not be hurt by somebody's words. You know, words hurt. Uh, is that uh, the same thing as a club? I don't, I don't know. I was, and when I say club, I mean like a baseball bat or something physical. Like it seems like we've moved that direction at least a little bit. Uh, when in the old days we just say, you know, let it let it bounce off our backs like uh, water off a duck's back, but. Uh, Peter, what do you got here for the evolution of this over time seems like a real small topic.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you, Russ, that things seem to have shifted and the place that they seem to have shifted most is amongst the professional intellectuals. So listeners, I know during the first part when I was talking, a lot of you at home were probably thinking, journalists and academics being like the supporters of free speech like this, this doesn't seem to be true anymore, right? Uh, Remember, there's a reason I emphasize Coase wrote this article in the 1970s. And so, you know, this is when there was, you know, US government shooting protesters at Kent State, you know. At the time, professional intellectuals really were viewed at, viewed as, whether they were or not uh, is a different question, but they were really viewed as kind of the stalwart defenders of free speech. Professors, journalists, they really were defending the First Amendment all the time. This doesn't seem to be the case anymore, or, or they were viewed that way at least. Uh, but yeah, that now we look at uh, part of the reason that I looked back at this paper is because after Elon Musk decided to buy Twitter, uh, what did we get but like every news station in the world talking about how dangerous it would be if Elon Musk allowed more free speech on Twitter? <laughs> I've, I, I found several articles by professors. Uh, in the conversation, this is a place where professors like to publish but like just popular articles, I guess. And all of these articles are basically saying that, well, when you allow people to talk unregulated, that, t- that hurts other people's freedom to talk because they'll you know, scare other people away by being mean and things like that. Uh, and so now we have like professors and journalists being like the number one people against uh, an unregulated market for ideas, basically. Uh, they, there doesn't seem to be any belief that the truth will out anymore. Uh, so there's that old saying that, well, sunlight is the best antiseptic, right? If you have a really bad idea and you expose it to everyone, then people are going to be able to destroy an argument. So like fascism, if you say something fascist, we should allow that to be out there. So that way people can show all the really good counter arguments because it's a bad idea. And since it is a bad idea, we'll be able to beat it with the arguments. That used to be the philosophy. That's not the philosophy now. Uh, the philosophy is if you say something about like a fascist theory or something like that, uh, you're, you're enabling fascism. You're not helping it. And so, this idea that the truth will out is not really held by journalists and academics anymore, if it ever was
0: and is that because you know the whole sunlight idea it kind of assumes a full information set i think similar to what we explore in economics uh that you know if we have everybody fully informed about the issues the democratic process would probably work out a little better amongst other things um but we have people have kind of rational ignorance with media and news and stuff, I think that the either either that or just there's limits to how much they want to digest and comprehend. It's
2: either not worth their time. The strong so- form of the argument, the sunlight argument, you might assume full information, but a weak form doesn't have to, to succeed. It just has to say that the costs in restricting and policing um speech outweigh uh, the benefits, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and I, w- I would say, I don't even think you need the
1: full information thing totally. You know, Ayn Rand has that really great quote that you can ignore reality, but you can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. Mm. So I, I do think like what a sunlight argument person would say is, no, when you pair two people, even if they're, they don't have perfect information, when you pair two people in a, a debate on an idea like fascism, the idea itself is so bad that that person will eventually lose the conversation. Uh, given enough time, even, you know, you don't even have to have a perfect uh, representative of the other idea.
2: Yeah, um, I I kind of think there's two things going on and I, I don't know if this is the right time to jump in and talk sure. about like what's been happening since like the 60s that I think there are these two forces that can explain possibly why the shift happened and the first is that um, when, Coase, when Coase is writing in the 70s, this is after, for instance, like the free speech movement. MLK on and injustices that free speech I want to talk about the free speech movement on campuses in okay. the United States, which started in the 60s at Berkeley. And the free speech movement Oh, is alma mater. Or, uh,
0: somehow we were going to
2: bring this back to, to Berkeley. OK, yes, I get it. OK, the free speech movement on campuses in the late 60s and 70s was in part by students and professors who thought that the administrative class was conservative. And the administrative class in universities was considered conservative right up through the 80s, right? Um, now, uh, after the 80s, beginning in the 90s and into the 2000s, you had the administrator class of the university, I think shift markedly leftward. And so one thing that I think you've been, we have seen is that um the free speech argument was used by professors who saw that their political ideology was at odds with the administrators in their institution. And so in order to be able to continue professing that poli- political I- ideology and not be punished for it. Um, they needed to have the freedom to say whatever they wanted ideologically right so. Um, that's a commitment to free speech that's prudential in the sense like, look, I want to have free speech because the people who uh, signed my paychecks and could fire me um, don't agree with me, Yeah, right? Um, But once the ideological character of the institution changed then it's very tempting to say, well, now that my ideology is in control of this institution, I'm not so sure I want those people who I politically disagree with, Um, Mm -hmm. I'm actually pretty comfortable using the ideological power of the institution uh, to silence those people.
0: It seems plausible that those faculty were young professors at the time. They actually moved
2: into administration, right? Could have been part of this evolution. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So those faculty move into administration. They go, well, actually, you know, this whip feels pretty good in my hand and I wouldn't mind wielding it a little bit. Right. Uh, If I have to wield it, I might as well wield it on those people that I think are bad. Right. Yeah. And then the young faculty coming up, well, the ones that uh, agree with the administrators are perfectly willing to let those administrators um, exercise power in pursuit of their political ideology. So that's one reason why I think it's shifted. And the second reason is that um, the division, so I take part of Coe's argument that um, this disanalogy between the market for goods and the market for ideas. Um it's it's they're really not that disanalogous, right? But I think since Coase has has been writing, you know, software has been eating the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. um that distinction has become almost impossible to make. Yes. So when I was actually teaching in grad school, I used to teach in my political philosophy class, I would teach in the very final bit of the semester about um 3D printed guns right because um the code to print a th- to print a 3D um receiver for an AR15 like that's just code that's speech so it really um i argued at the time you know kind of collapsed the second amendment into the first mm-hmm. in order to restrict uh somebody's being able to make a firearm no you uh, you would actually have to restrict their ability to send that code to somebody else, right? And argument at the time was, look, uh, people on the left usually really love the first amendment um, and people on the right really love the second amendment, but people on the right usually were kind of wary of the first amendment or uh, allowed for more um, uh, restrictions on it, like things like burning flags, whatever. And people on the left were you know, uh, very comfortable with restricting the second amendment. But these two things seem like, you know, if you collapse the Second Amendment into the first, what happens? Um, so you were trying to be very diplomatic. You were bridging gaps. You were bringing people together. Kind of. And I, obviously, really I solved all the problems because nobody <laughs> agree, argues about this First or right. Second Amendment anymore, right? right? Um, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the things we argue for in philosophy is that you have to be consistent, right? And maybe if Coase's argument was, well, we have to, uh, you know, these two sectors aren't very different, and if we accept restrictions in one, we should accept accept restrictions in the other. And it seems like Peter's saying, well, now uh, it seems like professors and, and journalists are much more comfortable arguing for uh, restrictions on free speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's a win for consistency.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I I think in a way it is a win for consistency. And so my shift, I, my my belief on the shift, and so the fee article that I wrote was. Well, now that we've, so let's say Coase is right, which I actually think he is. And now we've had the shift Well, what explains the shift. I think Justin, you're right on part of it. I think that the acceptable societal discourse has moved to left. What that means is it's gonna be in the self-interest of less people on the left to defend controversy, right? If your views are on average, more acceptable, uh, that means there's less of them that are controversial. So you, you know, don't need to defend it anymore. Uh, The other piece is that I think, uh, and I think you're alluding to this, the market for ideas has been uh, marketized. I I don't want to say democratized. People say that sometimes, but it has nothing to do with voting, so it's not democratized. It belongs to the common man now. And so people do not get their, their lectures on what they think about the world uh, from the, their professors, they get them from YouTube now, right? Uh, people listen more intently to a Joe Rogan podcast than they do <laughs> in my economics class. Uh, as much as I wish that weren't the case, that's true. People fought, find the thought leaders in the world uh, on things like YouTube. You don't read, art, the really interesting articles are not on CNN.com anymore or in the New York Times. The really interesting articles are on Substack. Uh, these are people who are intellectuals, uh, but they're not traditional professional intellectuals. Professors and journalists do not rule the market for ideas anymore. It's basically what I'm saying. Uh, Twitter accounts rule the market for ideas. This is why I think the t- Twitter thing was such a big controversy is, you know you can see an account called Libs of TikTok, uh, which gets super popular. More followers of Libs and TikTok than will ever watch Rachel Maddow, right? And this person gets really popular and they have this megaphone and they're saying things that go against the message. Now, that's not the narrative. We're not talking like that. We're talking like this. Uh, and so when the market for ideas slips from the hands of the legacy class, they have less incentive to defend that market for ideas. And so I think part of it is the right left move that's happened over the course of the last 50 years. But part of it, too, is that uh, the market for ideas is now everybody's market. It's not just this professional intellectual class and like any market, incumbents really like regulation to stop entrance. If you're not worried about people entering your market, you don't need to regulate to keep them out, but once more people get access to online libraries, they can talk about, you know, old history books without having been being raised up since the age of eight with the dissertation topic in mind, uh, you know, you, you, can, uh, you can engage more uh, with the public. So in a way, the market for ideas has become more populist, we could say it belongs to the people now, not to the elites so
0: yeah I mean, simply put more decentralized right yeah I mean, that's what you're saying is that we we don't have that so we've got yet another. Uh, good thing coming out of technology, I think, or is it good, I think, is that what coast is saying is that um the argument you just made is that the elites or the people who were formally in control are, are going to be the outcriers of we need limits on this type of speech and uh you know to control or to keep their power um or is that what Coase would be advocating a little bit that it's it's too noisy and people need more uh control of that externality that might be process basically what you're asking is if, if the government's different disinformation board is yeah not actually a bad thing but or what coast's view i don't know peter's one has looked at it closer I
1: yeah know. so so i i i'm not exactly sure where <laughs> coast would come down on the radio i don't want to put words in his mouth the main point of the paper was to kind of highlight this asymmetry and explain it i think the interesting thing is that now the asymmetry is not holding anymore. Academics favor, like Justin said, regulating both markets. Basically, now, uh, now they basically said, "All right, coast, you're right. Let's regulate them both. <laughs> right?
0: We need um, control. We know what's best for people." And and,
1: people. and I tend, I think, in the opposite direction. Uh, at, at least to a certain extent, I'm more of a fan of regulating neither uh, because I, I tend to trust the attitudes and actions of the the population uh who controls these markets more than the regulators so a, as we
0: that. do this one thing that just popped to mind as we're as we're recording this um they're on the eve of the trials for the january 6th uh riots at the capitol so i guess does that freeze is that an example where the speech turned into behavior and that's the argument for it being more controlled from cosas standpoint or or uh I guess, does the world become more chaotic and uh, unmanageable and we're not able to coordinate as well as we could before due to that? Um, I So I think ultimately
1: what you're asking is, should we be regulating speech uh, and I guess my answer and your the justification being like, well, if you don't regulate speech, you know, you could have violent protests uh, and you know, you can see lots of examples of those for the last two years on many different uh, ideologies. Um, I think the answer is that, yes, there is a place for speech regulation, but I don't think that place is through uh, our you know, government political institutions. I don't think it's a... Uh, I don't think it's the place of the de- the democracy to regulate speech, I think that that's a place for like families regulate speech or like churches. regulate speech i'm not against all regulation of speech, I think there are some things that you could say to someone that it would be wrong for you to say to someone this seems pretty obvious to me, uh, but the question is, how do we make those rules and how do we enforce those rules
2: so.
0: I Justin's think not about our philosopher here. Are we going to get your angle?
2: So a lot of the arguments for the regulation of speech say that some speech is harmful and therefore it, you know, uh, and therefore it, uh, we ought to regulate it. It's immoral therefore we ought to regulate it. And um, you, you don't have to follow that argument to the conclusion that we ought to therefore regulate it, especially not as Peter was saying at, you know, the kind of level of the state. Um, just because something is wrong doesn't mean that it ought to be um stopped by the state it's yeah. it's wrong to cheat on your spouse but we don't we don't want the police um to be regulating marital fidelity speak for um, yourself yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because we don't think it's wrong um most people think that that's much uh more immoral than say running a red light right but we're comfortable with the state um policing red lights and we're uncomfortable with them policing marital fidelity Uh, the reason we're uncomfortable with it is because we think the uh potential for abuse is way too high right um and i i think that that's the case in uh with regard to speech too um especially since as i was saying earlier software has eaten the world and um things like bank transfers uh so much of our lives now is uh Not actually exchanging physical goods, but actually exchanging data and that data um, can also fall under speech codes that I'm very, very uncomfortable with uh, the state being able to regulate any speech at all, and I would much prefer that any regulation that we want. um, We have to do at the level of church or uh, community and family, Um, you know, there were things that I was not allowed to say growing up and uh, I obeyed those rules much more uh mindfully than I did things about stop signs and whatever. So yeah. Um, it's like a social shaming. And I
1: I think one last you know piece of this is and we've kind of beaten around it a little bit, but I, I, I think there is sort of this hubris uh, that goes along with this idea that we can use uh, the apparatus of like a state or try to intentionally influence the the entire culture uh, of like a country in such a way uh, that we uh, can improve it. And the hubris is the belief that uh people are really dumb and will fall for mis- and disinformation and i will not or my 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 given uh regulator who's chosen by half the people anyways which is a a, a different uh topic that person's going to be good enough to do it and i don't think either of these things are right first off i don't think people are actually that susceptible to mis- and disinformation i this is always my example but the proof that we have that russia was involved in the 2016 election is not that they tamper with voting machines but there's Facebook memes of Jesus and the devil arm wrestling uh, for the fate of the country that were paid for by Russia. <laughs> I don't think anybody was convinced by this. You'd have a really hard time convincing me that that had any influence on the election at all. Uh, it's it's laughable, it's, it's even beyond humor, it's ridiculous. So I don't think people are that dumb and I don't think uh, people elected are that smart. In fact, if anything, I think that the institutions that we normally have in the government, Structure incentives in such a way that people in those organizations will act much dumber than the average person. Not that they are dumber, but they will act much dumber.
2: Not only are the both those things false, like you were saying, but and this is what you hinted at: it's logically impossible for them both to be true. Right. right? <laughs> uh, if people are that dumb, then there's no guarantee that the people that they elect will be smart. Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: No. And I, I think we have lots of examples that now this kind of relates to where the government can't, it's impossible for them to actually regulate it fully. So I think many people incorrectly say, oh, if the government makes it illegal, then it goes away, right? Illegal drugs make alcohol illegal with prohibition, pass a law. Uh, but what happens is if people want speech to be free, they're going to find ways to communicate. So we we had the, our last podcast on the dark web, we've got URBIT, we've got uh, other innovations that would pop up, Um, they already do pop up in China, right? I mean, so China has uh, a pretty hard clamp down on free speech, but yet new innovations emerge on how people communicate uh, using Bluetooth. Uh, I remember during the Hong Kong stuff of uh, making communications travel uh, kind of peer to peer. I mean, it's just amazing that it's going to happen. And so that's what I, I like to think the real economy when I was in Zimbabwe also The real economy always emerges uh, in one way, shape or form through illegal markets or or other ways. Um, uh, People want to engage people want to exchange right, and so I think the market for goods and services in that way is not any uh, dissimilar to the market for ideas, people are going to figure out how to exchange. yeah and that's why I you know I, I
1: don't try to make recommendations often, but if I were recommending someone to do something about this if you're worried about the spread of censorship. Uh, I you don't. I don't think you need to go outside a government building with a sign. I don't think that does anything at all. I think you do what Elon Musk is maybe going to do, which is he's going to buy Twitter. Or uh, you. Can, can we talk about this with Bitcoin and freedom all the time. The market for goods. What you do is well, you figure out a way to exist in that market without you know the ability of regulation. Do the same thing with speech. You know, use apps that you cannot be traced on. Uh, try to invent technologies that will allow you to communicate. Without uh, intervention, you know this all is very big and it's very hard. Uh, here's here's another easy one: uh, find a like-minded group of people who are not going to turn you into thought Gestapo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and talk to them in person, you know, not over networks that can be easily, you know, imagined, police. So again, I, I always go for practical action over political action. Uh, there's practical steps you can take, t- take in the realm of speech too.
0: All right, well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University i'd like to thank you all for listening a five star rating helps other people find us Uh, please pass along our show to your friends and family that might like to listen to other than that be fruitful multiply thanks.